This is episode 107 of Alohomora for October 25th, 2014. Everyone and welcome to another fantastic episode of Alohomora. I'm Eric Skull. I'm Kat Miller. I'm Michael Harley, and our guest on this episode is David Sullivan, all the way over in the UK. Can you say hi to the listeners, David? Hi to the listeners, David. Um, <laughs> as they said, my name's uh, David Sullivan. I'm from London in the UK. I'm 23, and I'm very happy to be here. Wonderful. What what house are you in, David? We always ask. Yeah, um, I would have to say Hufflepuff, and that is also where Pottermore put me, so I'm quite happy about that. Uh, it's just, I don't know, I know it's a bit of a cliche for people online to say Hufflepuff, at least that's how I feel. Uh, <laughs> online it seems everyone's either a Hufflepuff or a Slytherin or a Slitherpuff, but yeah, no, Hufflepuff is where I've always seen myself, so yeah. Who thought we'd ever get to the point in the fandom where it would be a cliche to say that you were a Hufflepuff? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, this is a fandom of hipsters. So what <laughs> David, That's what's your true. what's your kind of what's your history with Harry Potter? When did you get into it? Well, I've been a fan for a long time. Uh, my first exposure to it was um, in 2001 when the first movie came out. Um, my dad actually got tickets for us to go to a special screening of the first film. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, speaking of hipsters, as a kid. Everyone else at my school loved Harry Potter, and I was the only one who didn't. I, it wasn't because I, it wasn't because I hated it. I just wasn't interested, and I was like, "What the hell is this? You know, this is going to boil over soon." So I kind of went along to this screening begrudgingly, and needless to say, I came out of that cinema, and the rest is history. I knew I'd found my new obsession, and I read the first four books, which were the ones that were out at the time, in the space of about a month, and I've never looked back since. Wow. Good story. <laughs> well, and it's great to have a Brit on the show, actually, for this particular chapter, because there's a lot of British-centric things to talk about in this particular chapter, one of the oh, most major... well, that's good to know, because uh, one of my pet peeves when listening to Alohomora sometimes is uh, the little hang-ups on British things when Rosie's not there to uh, guide you <laughs> down the right path. So oh, okay. I'm glad I can be of some use. All right. Well, Michael I'll, and David, I'll rely on you both to point those out to me because I'm pretty sure I missed every single one of them in this chapter. Yeah. <laughs> You're By good at way, that. Yeah. Before the hate starts coming in, I should say that everything I say, take it with a pinch of salt. That is British sarcasm at its finest, you know, the kind of thing you'll only get on Hello Mora. So, you know, <laughs> don't, don't feel that I'm being a jerk to our beloved hosts or anything. Uh, don't worry, I'm sure they can take it. <laughs> Listener, beware. <laughs> right. <laughs> this week, we are going to be discussing Chapter 29 of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix titled Career Advice. But, of course, before we do that, we are going to talk about some comments from last week's chapter, which was chapter 28. And everyone out there who can count already knew that. So, the uh, first comment we have here is from Ellen Dawn on the main site. She says, I would like to make a quick comment on the James being a controversial character discussion. I've personally always felt that James never redeemed himself within the pages of the text, and so it is hard to read the Snape's worst memory scene and feel the same way about James as I originally did. We have Lupin who discusses the scene and provides some feedback that is supposed to ease our minds slightly, 
But there is one thing that makes it impossible for me to think very highly of James. That one thing is serious. Throughout this book and earlier books, we see Sirius act completely immature regarding his relationship and grudges with Snape. When I see James's best friend act so immaturely with Snape this many years later, it has a profound impact on what my mind would extrapolate James's behavior to be if he were alive at the time of this book. I'm sure James changed as he grew up and must have toned down the ego a bit to end up with Lily, but to me, he will never be fully redeemed for what he did in this scene, or better said, who he was in this scene. Oof. Dang. Yeah. That is yeah, harsh. Like, <laughs> so, so I guess, I mean, I like this comment because it's basically saying if James had really reformed so profoundly, it would have affected Sirius and changed Sirius too, so that they would never say anything against Snape. Mm. Yeah, I mean... Keep going, Kat, uh, go ahead. Uh, I, no, I... I I'm not sure I have a complete thought on it yet, although I do really like it. No, I, I but, d- yeah, it's definitely well Yeah, written. I mean, but Sirius was in jail for 13 years. Like, all, his, all he's got left is, is his glory days at uh, Hogwarts, I think, that he clings to. And, and I, would, I would say that it's probably not the same thing, although because I, I agree with Ellen Dawn that it's not in the text that James is really redemptive. We just kind of, in this chapter that's forthcoming, have to take... Lupin and Sirius's word for it. Yeah, I mean, I think Ellen does raise a very good point, and I agree with uh, what you just said, that I don't think the text actually provides much evidence for James having evolved, because we don't, well, we don't really get to see any of him as an older man. But, I mean, all I will say is that I don't think using Sirius as the litmus test to judge James's development is necessarily the best thing to do, because the thing with Sirius is he didn't uh, well, what actually does come out in this chapter is they say the thing that really reformed James was Lily. And that obviously mm. is something that Sirius didn't have. As far as we know, he didn't have a, a significant other. Um, and of course, the other thing with Sirius is the uh, the 13, the 12 years, sorry, in Azkaban. You know, mm-hmm. I always get the sense that left him a bit emotionally stunted. So I think you just touched on this, that mentally he is still back in that same time period where, I mean, I know that James hadn't long left school when he was killed, but I still feel that in that time there was room for him to have grown up. Um, but don't you think that, I mean, obviously Sirius and James remained close even as they got older. And sure, you know, Sirius didn't have Lily, but he had Lily in his life. Don't you think she would have impacted him? I mean, considering well, that no. Sirius lived with James, Sirius lived with James in the family, though. Well, is this an Alfonso Cuarón movie where he says that Lily really affected, like Lupin and Sirius, really much? No, no I don't <laughs> think joke. that's in the book. Joke. But uh, <laughs> no, no what was in the movie is what I'm saying. When Lupin confides in Harry that Lily saw the best in others. Yeah, no, that's um, that's from Lupin's perspective strictly. Sirius doesn't really talk about I'm saying about if Lily it affected Lupin, why wouldn't it affect Sirius the same way? Well, but Lupin was me, already not a jerk. I suppose, yeah. what, I suppose what I'm saying as well is, I mean, not just Lily specifically, but I'm trying to think uh, real-life examples here. I mean, quite often when you get boys that age, sometimes, you know, you might get a bunch of guys who are a bit sort of rogues in their own way. And I do think that sometimes getting a steady girlfriend can cause them to mellow out a bit. Whereas Mm -hmm. if Sirius didn't have that, then maybe he is still a bit of a rogue. And uh, I mean, 
it's hard to say because I'm thinking back to that um, one-page story that JKR wrote about James and Sirius on the motorbike. Do you mm-hmm. remember? I was that? thinking about that too mm-hmm. a minute ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because that is obviously set after they left Hogwarts, mm-hmm. or at least that's the assumption. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in which case, that may be our only glimpse at the way that James was in his interactions with Sirius after this period, really, mm-hmm. uh, in Snape's worst memory. And, mm, I mean, I think, obviously, none of us really know the answer because it's all going to come down to the fact that we don't know a lot about how James was in those later years. But, I mean, I could see one of them maturing more than the other, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. And um, being hunted will do that to you. And I realize it was the war and everybody was in the war together, but I, I think Lily and James specifically were hunted specifically by Voldemort. Um, and I feel like that would be a real, have a real humanizing effect on on you and just trying to raise your young and that kind of thing. Like I, I feel like James in the end was probably a pretty good father. Um, pretty good husband to to Lily. He adapted to be whatever she needed, whatever they needed to survive for as long as they did. So now we have an audio boo from Angela. Hi, my name is Aisha Hawkins, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the episode Everyone's 15. As someone who has a little age on my side, as I'm closer to Kat's age, I really believe whether or not you sympathize with James or not, begins with where you were socially in the hierarchical structure of high school. So if you were at the very top, then of course you sympathize with James because you realize that 15-year-olds will mature and later realize that that is not a behavior they would like to pass down to their children. However, if you are at the very bottom, then you are with Snape in the fact that no, he gets no credit for being 15 and acting like a jerk because Lily was 15 and she wasn't a jerk. Also, I think that adds what adds to the controversy is that Sirius is grown as James' best friend. And we would assume that James would be a lot like Sirius, unlike Lupin, who has shown remorse and has grown and matured. So that's my two cents. Thanks. I like this. I like this comment. Um, is it possible that... What she's suggesting, so like, depending on where we were in the hierarchical structure of our high schools, if we would be more inclined to be sympathetic towards James or Snape, depending on where we were. All right, everybody, time to own up to your high school experience. I I was going to say, I specifically put that in there because I don't fit her theory. Um, I was not a popular girl. I wasn't like at the bottom like Snape is or whatever but I was a band geek you know I had my my little group of friends and we hung out in the band room and like you know did that stuff um but okay I guess I take it back that I don't really fit this because I do sympathize with Snape um but I don't at the same time I'm somewhere in the middle I guess sorry that was very non so you were somewhere in the middle in school and you're somewhere in the middle in the book or regarding who you feel sorry for? Um, sure. That, yeah. That, 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 that's yeah, the, that fits the theory. That, yeah. that was served to, yeah. Because yeah. that's, that's about where I was. Because I was not, like, people always told me after high school that they were so shocked that I was so myself in high school. People were always really surprised that I was just happy to be me. And I went to a really good high school. I went to a charter school that 
was, you know, encouraged, I think, more than if I had gone to a public school. But um, I was always kind of the person who could flit around between pretty much everybody and just chat with anybody. And I, I felt comfortable. And, and in that same regard, yeah, I, coming away from Order of the Phoenix, I, I remember feeling bad for Snape. But at the same time, I remember also taking in what Sirius and Lupin say later about James and also seeing that James isn't all bad and that he's there's there's no one wrong person in this setup of what happened mm-hmm. yeah i think i think the scene in the chapter is is written so beautifully that you're just supposed to feel bad for snape no matter what for me i'd have to say i was also probably in the middle to low end but i think that because of the chapter being written so well you're supposed to feel bad for snape no matter what um It'd be interesting to hear from somebody who's like utterly popular, but I think if if anybody anybody with a bit of age on them um, would possibly have the um, insight to regret their actions, bullying others, and or um, you know you'd understand that it, it's not necessarily just bullies and and bullied um, in the world. So I think I think if you've had a human moment in your uh, years of schooling you can sympathize for both characters in different ways yeah I was just I was always that person um I wasn't really ever picked on in high school because I was I was you know I was always quiet and to myself but mm-hmm. you know a pretty confident person no I you know I was a goody two-shoes I never did anything wrong so <laughs> nobody ever like picked on me for anything but definitely growing up when I was younger and uh, the later years of elementary school and middle school that's when it was the roughest. Yeah, middle school for me was terrible. Ugh, awful. Yeah, I was homeschooled for middle school because my parents didn't think that I would do well in a public middle school, and they were right. So you have a you have really cool parents. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> well, our last comment here from our friend Celestina is my homegirl. Yes, I'm singing a Celestina Warbeck song tomorrow night at the library that I work at. So. <laughs> Please. You selling tickets, Michael? Wait, Michael, you have this special feature on the app this week. You have to record it. (laughs) I will try and I will get somebody to videotape it. That would be incredible. (laughs) I have to see that. Okay. But anyway, Celestine is my homegirl, says, I was thinking about Harry's reaction to his dad bullying Snape, and I wonder, in an alternate universe where James and Lily aren't killed, would this matter to Harry as much? Would Harry grow up knowing about James's dislike of Snape lessen his shock at seeing his father bullying him? Would Harry's feelings of disappointment and anger be as strong if he hadn't lived with the Dursleys bullying for 10 years? Or is it just another aspect of his saving people thing? Hmm. That is a very, very good question. Um, my immediate thought to that is that Harry, I mean, I can't, I imagine he would still be disappointed in seeing what his father did to Snape, but it wouldn't necessarily be such a shock because he would know that his dad was more of a a well-rounded human being, I suppose. He would know that there were pros and cons to him. Whereas as it stands, Harry has grown up, or I should say over the last um, five years, had this very idealised image of James in his mind, which is nothing but good things because that's all anyone ever tells him. Uh, other than Snape, but he always disregards Snape's comments. Um, So I don't think he would be so shocked to see that his dad would be capable of showing malice to someone like Snape. But 
I do think that Harry ultimately takes more after his mother and is naturally a very sort of compassionate person, uh, mm. which, again, I suppose ties into the saving people thing. Um, so uh, I don't know. It is a good question. Um, I don't know that he would feel as much sympathy for Snape, maybe, but it would still possibly make him uneasy. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's really a game-changing question because without the years and years of abuse from the Dursleys, Harry, and without and with his parents there, I mean, Harry would be a totally different person. Right, I was going to say, he probably wouldn't even ever see these memories or think about them. or He obviously would not be taking occlumency lessons because oh, his parents like, would well, be alive. If the whole book hadn't... Yeah, the whole book would I mean, yeah. if the entire series hadn't happened. That's the yeah. problem with when you do what-ifs is that there's a ripple effect, but I think... If we're saying that, like the the rest, I think with with the, these particular kinds of what ifs, we're saying that if this, if we could change it where this one thing changes, but we can still keep everything else intact. Yeah, I no, I agree. Um, because I think uh, I think David's on the right track, especially because that last line in chapter twenty eight uh, is what was making Harry feel so horrified and unhappy was not being shouted at or having jars thrown at him. It was that he knew how it felt to be humiliated in the middle of a circle of onlookers knew exactly how Snape had felt as his father had taunted him. Mm -hmm. So there's a direct reference in the narration to Harry's years of being bullied by what I assume he's remembering is Dudley and the Dursleys. Um, So, I do think that definitely does play a role in it, but I think I think you're right, David, too, that there's still the element that his father has been built up in his eyes so much by other people that that would that that deconstruction of the father figure that happens throughout the entire Potter series um, would still be a factor here. Yeah, I mean, to me, I see Harry being exposed to Snape's worst memory as a real a bolt from the blue. It's a complete shock to him going from one extreme to the other. Um, because prior to this, really, it is only Snape who's ever put down his father. I feel that if over the course of the series people had maybe filled in the blanks about James a bit more, then Harry could have taken it a lot better. But as it Mm. stands, um, because he's been living with this idealised image that his father was some sort of noble hero, and suddenly he, he actually sees his father in the memory and he sees him bullying Snape, it is a complete shock to him. I still think that, I mean, if Harry hadn't grown up living in, with so much systematic abuse at home, he would still be opposed to the bullying, but it wouldn't necessarily affect him on such a personal level. Yeah. Whereas I think what really uneases Harry uh, in that last chapter is that he actually finds himself, you know, not looking at his father and thinking, oh, yes, I take after him, I'm so proud. The person he actually feels himself relating to is Snape. Mm-hmm. So which is something that he obviously wasn't at all prepared for. So that's my do take not, on it. Do not like, is what Harry's <laughs> thinking. He does not like that. Yeah. He does not. But um, so that wraps up our recap comments for this week. And take it away, Michael Harley. Absolutely, because we've been discussing James so much. Let's flip that a little bit. And with the podcast question of the week, we're going to focus a little more on the other part person in this argument and that is snape and the question from last week is this is snape's worst memory but what makes it the quote 
worst, unquote. Is it the interaction with Lily and guilt of calling her a mudblood? The humiliation of Jane by James? The full scene of everyone laughing at him? Or something worse? So, the majority of the comments were in, uh, in agreement that it actually, the reason that it is the worst um, is in fact because this is where, uh, this is a major turning point for Lily and Snape's relationship that Snape frequently reflects on. There were a lot of comments about that, and that has, of course, been discussed a lot in the fandom as is, so I did try to choose some comments that kind of pushed a little deeper and more theoretical, which we always like here on Alohomora. And the first one I chose was from Bent Winged Snidget, who said, I definitely think that Snape calling Lily a mudblood made it his worst memory, but in a different way than assumed. Part of his regret and pain caused by this event was Lily's immediate distance from Snape, as we find out in the last book in the pensive. However, I think that part of the pain was also caused by the fact that after five years of being extremely close with uh, close friends with Lily, Snape had come to think of her, even unconsciously, as a mudblood. His friends like Mulsibur and Avery probably influenced this thought a lot, but I'm sure Snape never even considered that Lily was any worse because of her blood heritage. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you get you he hangs around with this crowd that is obsessed with blood status, and those terms get thrown around so often that they're that they mean less they have less of an impact like he's more likely to just use them and uh Mm -hmm. he gets familiar with that word enough that he throws it out forgetting that it's actually got it's tremendously hurtful Mm -hmm. um and that the people that he doesn't hang out with as often but like the girl of his dreams lily is not the kind of person that is going to use that word yeah yeah, that's that's why that's why I chose this comment because I feel like that that idea that that idea of what mudblood means to that at the time that Snape used it and versus kind of how he sees that word now and the time he's had to reflect over that particular aspect, I I just felt kind of goes a little deeper than Snape pining after Lily, you know, which is what we talk about a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's like in this um, in this upcoming chapter when Lupin says, "Oh, you know, he always had his head buried in the dark arts." Like mm-hmm. that's that's it exactly. Is like Snape allowed these words. The, he allowed himself to become the person who uses these kinds of words. Yeah, um, which we will in spite of himself. Which we will later find out is really what hurts Lily so much. Um, right. It's not. It's not just the fact that their affection for each other is gone but that it also cuts so deep that snape is has turned to a different side than she has um but of course that will be revealed a little later um and we also had another great response um from spinner's end and another commenter ari schwartz kind of built on spinner's end i don't think with even realizing it because they didn't uh, directly respond to each other ari schwartz your comment came in like three hours before recording so i'm and i'm so glad it did um but spinner's end started by saying is this really snape's worst memory wouldn't that be the day he realized he was at least in part responsible for killing lily or the day lily died snape might have ruined their friendship in this moment but she was alive and as long as she was alive there was hope however futile that she might come back to him and (laughs) ari schwartz said um in a follow-up comment I think that if we are to believe that this is in fact Snape's worst memory, 
This says something rather telling about Snape's character as well as his relationship with Lily. Like, if Snape truly loved Lily, then his worst memory would be finding out that she had been murdered and that he had helped her and that he had helped lead her to her death. But if this is his worst memory, it shows that Snape didn't love Lily. He just wanted her all for himself. He views her as this idea and not a person. This memory is the turning point wherein Lily breaks away from Snape and will eventually get with James. And for Snape, that's unbearable that someone else could get this, quote, thing, unquote, that he felt he deserved or owned. Whoa. Mm. Yeah. Whoa. There's a lot in there. It's a, it's, that's an amazing comment. And I was thinking the whole time about that kind of similarly, is that what if this is Snape's worst memory because this is the moment where he felt like he could have stopped Lily from ever being with James and therefore this is the moment that he lost kind of all hope Mm. in ever getting her back. And I think that that relates very much to this comment. I mean, my take on it, and this is also um, kind of addressing Bent Wing Snidget's point as well, is, I mean, there's lots of ways you can look at it, but the way I've always seen it is Snape sees this as the absolute point of no return, not just for his chances of being with Lily or anything, but for himself as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the point that Bent Wing Snidget made about um, how this was possibly the first time he had used the word mudblood almost subconsciously, it just spilled out. Could you possibly make an argument that this is the defining moment where Snape actually turns to the dark side? It, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that is pretty much exactly well stated. And, and I mean, Snape, for me, in my head canon, it's like Lily, everyone else had been like, oh, yeah, Snape, he's such a dark arts kid. Like, he's let's go pick on him. Let's go because we're not into that dark crap. But Lily was like willing to hold out. You know, she had grown up with Snape. She knew him. And it wasn't until that moment when she got called a mudboy by him, like she realized then that she was just wasting her time. Like that was who he truly was. Like if he's going to call her that, and we know it was an accident. We know he didn't even mean to say it, but he was so hurt and like thrown and like upside down that he said it. But that was the point for her where she realized that, wait, he is, you know, it was kind of a uh, proclamation of his identity, like we're all saying. And I think that that's the point where she realized that it wasn't, worth it that he was in fact maybe too far gone onto the the dark side at that point and the the worst part of it is that as a falling action because he's so upset he's just going to tumble further and further into the the dark side and that's something that was debated in pretty much all of the comments is kind of that uh, is is the memory um snape's is the memory truly the moment when Snape loses Lily or is the memory Snape's personal perception of where he loses Lily? Um, and a few comments brought up that quite a few comments brought up that the, the memory we will say, see later in Deathly Hallows um, is actually perhaps the full um, length version. Like that, that's the sequel to the worst memory or the proper ending to the worst memory that Harry doesn't get to see right now. Um, and that actually that completes the 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 whole thing in that sense in that lily because the way i read that memory is that even though lily really is at the end of her rope with snape she is giving him a choice um in that discussion and she's kind of not directly but she's kind of giving him an ultimatum um and he turns her down in the end um and of course you know 
the discussion will go on and on about Snape's regrets of that decision or whether he does or does not regret. Um, but to get back to to Ari's comment, I just thought that that was a very provocative suggestion that Snape doesn't, in fact, perhaps love Lily or love her in the truest sense that perhaps he just wants to possess her yes that she's a thing an object and that he's he's in love with an idea of her i think that's definitely true and you know it's no secret that none of us on this uh podcast really enjoy snape we think he's (laughs) a good character not a good person um i've always thought that he didn't really love her that he loved the idea of her and Hmm. what she could do for him pretty much i agree 100 percent Yay, another one. Woohoo! No, I don't know. I think she's always been a symbol for him as what's pure and good in the world. And yes, it's a symbol. It's kind of like an idea. But I think he really I think she really could have made him happy and I think he really would have if they had, if they had gotten together, I think things would be totally different. I think he does like her for who she is. He she he also though, I think from an early age saw her as unattainable. Um I mean, she came from a whole family and he didn't. I mean, you know, that's kind of the thing, too. I mean, there is something that Spinner's Ed said. I mean, is this really Snape's worst memory? And I feel like, well, the other thing about that is maybe it's just the worst memory that Harry was able to see then because he couldn't, of course, go to the day that Snape found out Lily was that dead. Yeah. Um, I think know, it's just a catchy chapter title. Broke dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's just politics. Yeah. Well, and of course, as, the, as a lot of people pointed out in the comments, um, Rowling is exceptionally clever by titling that chapter The Worst Memory because, of course, reading through the first time, many of us assumed it was the worst because of James's taunting of Snape. And, of course, that turned out not to be the case. Um, almost everybody did overwhelmingly agree that the memory was the worst, more for the fact of what happened between Lily and Snape than what happened with James. Almost nobody discussed what James did to Snape as far as that goes. So a lot of very rich commentary. And there was there were some, of course, excellent comments that I couldn't include. I wanted to shout out to Albert Kasher, Casey L, Centaur Seeker 121, Chocolate Frog Ravenclaw, Christy Lou, Gobbling Fire, Hufflepug, oh. <laughs> Holly Norris, Huffleproud, Laurel Phoenix, Looney Lauren, Sheetlebug, and Socks Are Important. There's a, definitely a few great new usernames in there. I also wanted to make a big highlighted shout out to Batty Bags, Minerva Lupin, Seeker Holly, Skagai, and Snuggles with Nifflers. You guys, your comments were excellent, and I almost was able to include them in the show, but they just couldn't fit. But please, everybody, make sure and head over to the main Alohomora site and read all of those fantastic theories and comments that our listeners came up with this week. Yeah, we had over 100 comments on the episode itself, which is amazing. You guys are the best. So definitely read those. And speaking of reading, be sure to read this upcoming chapter before we discuss it. (coughs) Chapter 29. (coughs) Career career advice. Are you quite sure you would not like a cough drop, Dolores? Well, guys, here is the chapter summary. Uh, Harry is having trouble dealing with what he saw in Snape's pensive. He wishes he could talk to Sirius about it, but soon a plan is made for him to do so. First, he must meet with McGonagall to discuss his future career as an Auror, but Umbridge crashes that meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Harry breaks into her office later that day. 
He has his chat with Sirius and Remus, and lastly goes downstairs to find that the Weasley twins have called it quits on their continued full-time education. Actually, the first point of this chapter also has to do with the Weasley twins, which is kind of cool. They kind of bookend this chapter. There's a very... Um, I don't think it's like a prominent, but there's this reference in the beginning of the chapter because Harry is moping and he's really, really worried about what he saw in the pensive still. And the only thing, this was going back to what David was saying earlier in in, um, this episode as well, which is that pretty much everybody around Harry growing up has said these great things about his dad. And that makes it a lot harder for Harry to reconcile his issues um, based on what he just saw. And Harry's kind of going through the whole story and figuring out that the only thing he heard against James beyond beyond like whatever Snape said um, to him was that McGonagall called both James Potter and Sirius Black troublemakers. This was back in the Three Broomsticks, I believe it was, in book three. And that was like the closest that anybody has ever gotten that wasn't Snape to saying that James was anything less than absolutely the most important person ever. So um, Harry however, is reminded, well, so they were troublemakers. That's kind of like Fred and George are troublemakers of this generation. And there's really this brilliant um, comparison or brilliant possibility that Harry considers, well, if, you know, if my dad and Sirius are the Fred and George of their age, could Snape be somebody like, like Malfoy, you know, who's, who's their enemy? Like, could we see... Fred and George behaving in a similar way to, say, Malfoy that we did James and Sirius with Snape. What do you guys think about that? There's so many great... Actually, this chapter has a, a lot of great comparisons to with present characters to past characters. Um, and this is, interestingly, one that I personally kind of used to skim over until this particular read because we got so many comments uh, leading from your guys's discussion last week that um you know would harry do this and everybody was like well harry's 15 too just like everybody's 15 as you all put it and uh the the interesting thing here is that harry doesn't harry doesn't necessarily like he's even hesitant in his comparison with and and he says like well maybe malfoy would deserve it at the very least and a lot of people were saying, well, Harry would never do Harry would never do an unprovoked attack on Malfoy. Uh, but I don't know. The, 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 just thinking about the dynamics, like Harry definitely puts himself above his father in this respect by saying, well, Malfoy would punch me first and then I'd punch him. Um, <laughs> and basically, I think the Weasleys would probably do the same. Um, yeah. So I think I think it's, I, I, I don't I don't know. If it's a fair, because the I don't think that I don't think Fred and George would do anything without provocation. No, I mean I think it's a hard comparison to make directly because at least based on what we see in Snape's worst memory, mm-hmm. Snape didn't do anything to provoke yeah. what happened. Right. Um, you know they picked on him just because he was different and weird and a bit creepy, basically. Um, whereas. The thing with Malfoy is Malfoy is an obnoxious brat and everyone knows it. And, you know, the Weasley twins are driven... I mean, they definitely have a good heart. They're pranksters, but they, you know, 
wouldn't really do anything with the intent of going out of their way to hurt someone. They're not in it for glory like James and Sirius were. So that, for me, is the big dividing line. Um, well, then again, Fred and George, even in this chapter, they, 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 they really they seek glory. In this in- moment, yes, but they're not doing it. I mean, the only thing they're doing is Umbridge and... We all know that she deserves that, and it's so not necessarily it's okay because she's no bad. because, <laughs> no, because it's, it's it's not towards her. All they did was the swamp, and she's just the disciplinarian of the school, so that's why it affects her. It's not direct. I mean, it's directed towards her, but it's not directed at her. Well, yeah, I, I nothing's being done to her. I think it's interesting how during this book, though, I mean, we're just forced to go along with with Harry. You know, it's like mm-hmm. Harry's good. And so everything he likes is good and everything he doesn't like is bad. Um, now, I fear that I feel like the book is fair with Umbridge. I mean, she's just the worst person imaginable. Um, so it's just it, it is it is a little, I think, fishy or a little vague, though, as to whether or not certain other people deserve what they get. But I do think I do think it is interesting, actually, to go back to Dudley and the in the situation that happened in Goblet with the Toffees. Because Arthur makes a very good argument to them, the, one of the few times he's actually firm with his children. And he tells them, you know, this is exactly why there are, this is why there are problems with, rela- with the relationship between muggles and wizards is because muggle, wizards see muggles as their playthings to kind of just play jokes on and do practical tricks on and it's not funny. And... You know, it's no wonder that Dudley is terrified of the wizarding world. I mean, Aunt Petunia and Uncle Vernon may seem to have an irrational fear of it, but look what they've encountered um, with things like this that have happened to both them and their child. I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a moment and say, um, but pretend you're in that room and you're a muggle and you are very aware of the wizarding world as they are. It's a little bit of an overreaction. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, if we're going to specifics, yes, Aunt Petunia probably shouldn't have been, like, tugging Dudley's tongue out, and there shouldn't have been things thrown. Right. But, at the same time, considering all the things that the Dursley, their most direct contact with magic, um, Fred and George certainly weren't helping. No, they weren't, but I, but I think that the Dursleys are scared of magic. Well, is it better or for- worse? Is it better or worse that Fred and George picked on Dudley, whereas James and Sirius picked on Severus, who could hypothetically defend himself mm. one day? You know, Dudley's way unable to defend himself. I mean, he actually had to have, and what Hagrid did to him, I mean, he had to have his pig's tail surgically cut <laughs> off. I mean, there's I mean, still that's, a nub that's, there that... That's really bad. That The pig's tail is bad. That's not a practical joke. That is a physical transformation. That's bad. I don't see the toffee as a giant big deal. Well, and well it's 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 nice to have this discussion though because it, it really reminds me of what happens um, in this chapter, which is that Hermione's looking at the pamphlet for um, Muggles mm. to, to work with uh, mm-hmm. to liaise with Muggles, and it's mm-hmm. a little bit like Michael was saying just then about. Um, people and again what weasley touches on what mr weasley touches on with with the relations um i'm gonna quote from the book all they want is an owl and muggle studies quote much more important is your enthusiasm patience and a good sense of fun 
<laughs> to, to, to liaise it's an it's like a government you know to liaise with with muggles you need a good sense of fun because they're just they're fun they're zany you can just those silly little them. humans <laughs> silly little human beings you know kind of thing so it's it's an interesting idea i guess that the weasley twins are very briefly um considered by harry to be like well could they, were were they kind of like the modern day weasley twins mm-hmm. um so do we think, where do we uh, end up on that? Do we think that James and Sirius were worse? Yeah. Yeah, they were more cruel. I think by the, okay. I think by the, the textual evidence, yes, James and Sirius mm-hmm. were worse. But because we don't have full information on that, I can't say for sure. And I know she's not going to fix it on Pottermore because she's so reluctant to write anything about the Marauders from this point. She's let the fan fiction <laughs> go wild and take it in its own world. So, um... A little bit into the chapter, Harry goes to the library, and he's he's still down about this whole situation, and he's surprised because um, who should come and join him but Ginny? Mm-hmm. And this is a, uh, a op- missed opportunity for the film to make another awkward Ginny Harry reference, which she's <laughs> feeding him, which <laughs> she's feeding him chocolate. Um, that it could have gone so wrong if they had filmed it, um, because she does feed him chocolate, but. Part of what um, the reason that I'm bringing this up is Michael had a great point a couple episodes ago now. We were just talking about how um, I believe Michael and I both ship Harry Ginny big time. But, uh, you know, apart from many people thinking that book, book six is the real Harry Ginny book, there are some great moments between them in earlier books. And this is one of them um, is in this library. And basically Ginny, you know, tries to comfort Harry. She recommends that he maybe talk it out with Cho. She misdiagnoses his, um, his upset as as being Cho related, but no, he says, actually, I'd really like to talk to Sirius. And she says, well, Hey, we might be able to work that out. And she basically, that's the catalyst. Then she goes off and talks to Fred and George who end up coming with, with a way for Harry to talk to Sirius. So I really think that Ginny is, is, wonderful for harry and um that was pretty much my point there that this the scene between them is is great and it, it she just works he feels better immediately after she leaves and it could be the chocolate you know but uh they get kicked out of the library together it's a great scene i think what's important here is that we the audience are seeing that Ginny is in some way through her actions able to provide harry with a source of comfort she's no longer just ron's little sister she mm. is actually someone that ron uh, sorry that harry can trust and confide in and you know th- you know she cares enough about harry and harry being happy that she is willing to use her connections to her brothers to uh try and make harry's wish come true in its own way hmm I, I, I do as I did in the last episode where we talked about this. I smash my coffee cup and I say, another. I want more. <laughs> Not enough. I like this scene. More scenes. I like this yeah. scene a lot. Like you said, Eric, I love this scene. I But I think initially, like the, the, the saddest thing about this, rereading it this time, I didn't even remember this scene existed. Oh, that is I sad. completely forgot about this. Yeah, and this is a lovely I mean, moment that shouldn't be forgotten. And I'm sorry, and I'm going to beg in advance, please don't throw me off the Skype chat, but <laughs> I am not the biggest Harry Ginny fan. And Okay, you're done. Goodbye. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Hang up. Click. <laughs> no, I'm not hosting um, the Skype call, or I possibly would. <laughs> but with that said, I am open-minded about it, and I had completely forgotten about this scene. And I reading the book again... 
um, and actually being, you know, picking up on the Ginny scenes and particularly her interactions with Harry. Mm-hmm. I don't think it comes quite so out of nowhere in book six. It's just very much left to subtext. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's and, and, and that, by the way, just to clear it up, I'm not a Harry Hermione shipper either. I was okay. Hermione. All right, <laughs> back in my good graces. Well, we've talked earlier about what happens when kids don't get along. Now let's talk about what happens when adults don't get along. <laughs> this chapter is brilliant. It has so many things to it. And the next thing that we're going to discuss is what happens when Harry goes to Professor McGonagall's uh, Office for Career Advice. <laughs> name of the chapter. So. Harry goes, and he is... Actually, he forgot about it. Um, He was heading up to Divination. So much has happened today. He's been in his head, and so he runs in a little bit late, and who should, of course, witness this um, but Professor Umbridge. Somehow, for some reason, she is there. Well, and I'm going to interrupt you, because mm-hmm. that was, like, a major question I had about this. Like, why is she there? And, like... yeah. If she's, you know, monitoring these or whatever, is she there specifically because of Harry? Like, why didn't she choose any of the other professors? Mm. Well, we don't know that she didn't. But at the same time, like, I do think this is just about Harry. Um, mm. Well, she she, oh, she basically exists in this chapter just to discourage Harry from, like, joining the ministry and becoming an Auror. And, but she doesn't give any advice at all about what profession he should be going to you know like yeah. she doesn't actually say he would be better suited for this she actually just says how bad of an idea it is and she of course coughs a lot and and you know makes notes and makes reference to her note wants McGonagall to read that she does not under any circumstances think that harry potter would ever 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 be fit for an or um position but at the same time she's pretty useless in actually uh justifying the reason that she's in that room well, and also, like, how does she know that Harry's going to go in there and say that he wants to be an Auror? I think whatever Harry said, she was going to have an issue with it. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, a question I was going to bring up is, I mean, yeah, I get the sense that she is only sitting in on this one session because it's Harry. But is she there to just get a rise out of Harry? Or is part of this trying to get a rise out of McGonagall? Because... Could it be that, I mean, McGonagall's made absolutely no secret of the fact that she's got no time for umbrage whatsoever. And, of course, McGonagall is the deputy headmistress and she's fiercely loyal to Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. Could it be that umbrage sees McGonagall as an obstacle and this is part of an attempt to maybe try and roll McGonagall into doing something that is so, you know, you know that she can... Um, Dismiss her? Yeah, exactly, in its own way. And part of why I say that is because something that does actually happen in this discussion is, you know, Umbridge, in a completely deluded, paranoid moment, accuses McGonagall of going for the role of the headmistress and, you know, wanting to wanting Dumbledore to take the role of uh, the minister. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So is it a case of she's doing this, one, to put Harry down, but two you know, killed two birds with one stone to try and basically antagonize McGonagall further. Uh, because that's certainly what happens, yeah. whether she's intending it or not. I th- I agree with that. I think McGonagall is number two on her list right now. Um, mm-hmm. At least if, if not, like, if not number two, definitely number three, if Dumbledore is on number two. Because she is the next person in power. And she has vocally, this is kind of like, this is very similar 
to Goblet of Fire where, um, because I just read this part because I, uh, of course, as the listeners know, I'm constantly rereading. I mean, a constant rereading cycle of the series with my brother. And we actually just read the part where Hermione um, it, it kind of vocally challenges Rita in in the um, in, in Hogsmeade and Ron says, don't do that. She's going to get you back. And Hermione's like, oh, don't even worry about it. And Hermione and McGonagall have been very much compared in that respect. And McGonagall is doing the same thing here. She has warned Harry previously not to rise to Umbridge and her taunting and her tactics to get things out of people. And McGonagall does exactly that in this scene. And it is exactly like you said, David, that is exactly what Umbridge wants from this confrontation. I would have to disagree that Umbridge's um, agenda has anything to do with McGonagall at first. And the reason is I was actually just rereading when you guys were talking. And I'm looking at it at the point where it becomes personal. Um, Basically, uh, McGonagall kind of draws first blood. If you're going to see this as a sparring match, um, Umbridge is there to try and, you know, just make it clear that she doesn't think that Harry could excel at whatever he wants to do. Um, And, but really, um, she's the one pointing to the marks and McGonagall says, oh, let me rephrase, (laughs) you know, Harry, uh, Harry is able to pass all, um, it was the competent teacher, it says, uh, I should have made my meaning plainer. Uh, he has achieved high marks in all defense against the dark arts test set by a competent teacher. So first she calls Umbridge incompetent, and then Umbridge ends up saying, um, let's see, which means this boy has as much chance of becoming an Auror as Dumbledore has of ever returning to this school. Umbridge makes it personal when she brings up Dumbledore and the fact that she doesn't think he'll ever return to the school, but that was after McGonagall had already called her not a competent teacher. Um, so it's getting heated, it's getting personal, we know it eventually erupts, but Umbridge waits to attack Dumbledore and attack McGonagall until after she herself has been attacked. That just shows me that she was really just there for Harry. Um, so just before we move on, I had one other thought just that I was thinking about while reading this section. Um, and it kind of takes us post-series. We don't have to talk about it too much. I just wanted to bring it up. And so we know that Harry doesn't go back to Hogwarts afterwards. And, you know, McGonagall's in here talking about how you need this, you need that, you need, you know, exceeds expectations and this and, you know, at least acceptable in that. And then there's three years of an additional training to become an Auror. So, like, he didn't finish Hogwarts. <laughs> so he never got his newts, seemingly, unless he took it as, like, a GED type thing where you can get it when not finishing school. So how did he actually become an Auror? Did he just test in? Like, oh, you you defeated the Dark Lord you get an automatic yeah here's here's the (laughs) test write your name harry potter you passed congratulations (laughs) it's okay you get an a no that uh that is a great point to bring up because this chapter is why that has always bothered me as as Mm. it would seem it has you cat um especially because like this chapter and david this is why i was so glad to have um a british individual on on the show because as far as the career advice chapter goes as a whole i've you know over here in the u.s we don't really do career advice like this until college and even then it's not so broad where people get to kind of look over all their options they've already chosen by the time they start college usually even if that's not the profession they end up in Um, we don't get career advice like that we definitely don't get career advice like this in high school we i did in my public school not to contradict you well i i I mean from the general and maybe i'm just blanketing but from the general 
um, understanding I have is that you get a more, you, you don't get such specified, you don't get little pamphlets and you don't get such specific uh, instructions on what you're supposed to do towards that job in high school. Uh, we I mean, did. Well, to give my experience, um, I mean, we, uh, I don't think we did get uh, careers advice in, you know, year 11, which is the equivalent of fifth year. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, because it was kind of assumed that everyone would be going on, uh, you know, to further education and that there would be time later on. So, yeah, we didn't get um, actual official careers advice until later on in college, as you say, which, you know, in hindsight doesn't make a whole lot of sense because you go into college and you pick subjects and you don't necessarily know what subjects you might need for your ultimate career, but that's how it's done. When we had careers advice, we would have people from different industries come into the school um, and they would all sort of, um, you know, have a little desk and, you know, they would have Q&A sessions and they would have pamphlets and things. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was more kind of... Not so much a specific... It's not as specific as it is in Hogwarts, where it's like, oh, well, if you want to do that, you need these grades. And McGonagall does suggest that there's further education in, as in aura training, but I always assume that happens at the ministry as kind of an understudy um, uh, position. But... Mm. Yeah, I, I didn't see that as sort of official, like, further education yeah. so much as, like, you would just go there and there would be some sort of induction course because there isn't any further education or university in the wisdom world, um, sixth and seventh year is the end of the line as far as their education goes. So really before going into that, they need to have a a rough idea of what it is they want to do in the long term. Yes, unless, as Kat and Eric said, you kill the Dark Lord with Expelliarmus. (laughs) (laughs) There's always Uh... one exception (laughs) to the rule. (laughs) And the opportunities are yours and you can rise to head of the department. In a very yeah, short needless to time. say, in uh, in my post school career, I've not defeated any dark lords, so uh, <laughs> my Sad. climb on the job ladder has been a little slower. But oh well, maybe yet, someday. yet. Okay, moving on. Um, Fred and George promised a diversion, and a diversion they did deliver. We'll get into that in just a moment. But Harry is able to sneak up to Umbridge's office. He uses the knife that could open any lock, which Sirius gave him a couple years prior. And he's able to actually go to Grimmauld Place via the Flu Network. At least his face, his head is in the flames. And he sees Lupin, and Lupin goes and gets serious. And he is able to basically tell them what has happened. So what we learn, um, first of all, we learn that Lily and James apparently didn't start dating until seventh year. So that is still, so it's not like Lily went right into James's arms that very next day of Snake's Worst Memory. <laughs> Um, that's key people i feel like that's important no it is to illustrate that's totally important i mean because part of what i had forgotten about snape's first memory is that he does say oh lily i'll let snape go if you go out with me Mm -hmm. and so it's it's really not like she took him up on that offer right away Mm -hmm. it's just like oh okay i'll go out with you because i don't have anything better to do like it still (laughs) took a severe i think coming around for james's character before she would go out with him no Mm -hmm. yeah i'd say that's one of the most informative telling tiny little bits of information we get about that right i mean but that's pretty much what uh lupin and sirius say is that it took a few more years Mm -hmm. like he eventually stopped looking for the girls in the room yeah you know 
he eventually stopped playing with his hair. Although they have this great moment where Lupin's like, I forgot he used to do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or maybe it was serious, but they, it, it's, it's tough because Harry is, is, is desperate. He's coming out to that, you know, he's telling them this whole story and they're listening and all they can do is, is, is say that this is, that he changed. And it still feels, I remember reading it for the first time and it still felt like not enough. It still felt like, I mean, the emotional wallop that the previous chapter packed and then Lupin's just like, oh, he got over it. You know, we're supposed to, I, I don't know. Did you guys feel the same way? Like, is it, does it make you feel all the way better or just a little bit better or how do you rate kind of the way that Lupin and Sirius are able to try and calm Harry? Hmm. Um, I think it reassures Harry in terms of knowing that his father died a good man and that Uh-oh. Lily had good reasons for sort of growing to life to love him in the end. I don't think it particularly justifies um you know, the way James actually acted at the time. And I think both him and Sirius do make mention of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, and Lupin says, like, I never stopped you guys either, even though yeah. I thought you were out of sorts. Mm. Yeah, that was the other interesting, actually, character connection, disconnection, is that um, previous in the previous chapter, um, Lupin is really connected to Lily, not by how they know each other, but how they act in the situation. Um and and there's a lot of narration that just connects their reactions and but then also distances them by saying Lily is the one who does something and Lupin is the one who does not and it's kind of Lupin love some more Lupin love here I'm always sad when I read this part because poor Lupin he's this is something that I think we've we've talked about before that Lupin was so uh, he really wanted to be so included in this relationship and Pottermore discusses this too, that that's why he doesn't do anything. Um, cause he was worried he was going to lose his friends. Um, mm. so he just doesn't say anything. And uh, uh, clearly all these years he's, oh, he still regrets and feels bad about that. So, yeah. Did you like, if you had any father figures that you liked in this series, then order of the Phoenix is the one that'll just destroy them all for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Rosie mentioned this last week on the show that the marauder section is the part that the the fan fiction absolutely exploded after this book in uh, in that category and it continues to this day like we don't definitively get assurance i don't think even harry like like david said i think harry leaves this discussion feeling yes his father died died a good man and was a good man in his marriage and grew up to be a good person but harry's Still, I, there's definitely this feeling that oh, the conversation got cut off a little early. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and right. Harry has more right. questions about this, and uh, sadly, we'll never really get more answers about it. So I, I think, oh, right. I, well, I think then... Harry's pretty justified in thinking that his father was a jerk at school at that time that he had seen. Yeah, I mean, yes. yeah, it was funny that you guys the whole everybody was fifteen line came last week because Harry says I'm fifteen. <laughs> in this yeah oh discussion. yeah well that's the great that's the great equalizer though is that harry is distancing himself from james which is like never before happened because he always thought oh yeah i'm just like my father i love that but now that he's the same age and he sees how differently james approaches Sirius, uh or sorry approaches snape um it just it just changes him but he is interrupted um there's there's a noise and <laughs> he ha- he actually just has enough time to get back to like leave 
Lupin and Sirius a criminal place and get under the invisibility cloak before Bilch comes in. Can but, we talk um, about how stupid, uncomfortable that would be to have your head spinning <laughs> while your knees stay in a different place? <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah, that's that's a bit weird, but I don't know. Maybe they should have given Harry some toast for his journey. <laughs> they that should would be have. Weird because, like, if Harry's head ate the toast, would the toast then sort of travel through the blue <laughs> network to his body? You know, because yeah. Some, I guess it would have to, but somewhere Noah is just singing "Hallelujah" that somebody. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a Noah pondering question. Yeah, no, the mechanic. It- well, the, the the mechanics of the flu network. That the the thing that terrifies me most about the flu network in this scene is that Harry has no definitive idea what he's supposed to do, and he's like, "I guess I'll just stick my head in the fire." And <laughs> luckily, it turns out okay. But knowing how many wrong things can happen with magic. That's that was kind of a gamble in the first place, just to stick his head in there. Oh yeah, and he kind of just—I mean, he puts his head in the pensive, but then all of him flies in, you know. Yeah. So like he puts so his many head here, but then some of him is able to remain behind. Yeah. See, I mean, this always struck me as bizarre because I mean, I know it's magic, so it's okay. But my—I suppose what seemed strange about it to me is that I always saw the flu network as essentially teleportation. It's this idea that you physically cease to exist in one place and you appear in another mm-hmm. whereas here i mean the question i would ask is physically where is harry's neck <laughs> i mean is it stretched incredibly thin between the two fireplaces or does it exist in another dimension or what happened there yeah well when you hear about the flu network too is it a place is there really like interchanging like highways or hallways or anything like that that you're flying through Um, yeah or is it that those like infinitesimally small uh units of measurement that connect to like wormholes (laughs) into like two or is it a wormhole you know is is the flu network a series of wormholes well and the fact that harry can feel the pain in his knees all the way from the other where his knees are that's a good point even and don't forget, his head His head isn't actually there. He's just an imprint in the fire in his head, right? Uh, well, Ooh. no, that's how it appears in the film. But in the book, I always got the impression that the head was actually sitting in the fire. So it's kind of like splinching, but without splinching. Yes. Yeah. I've, yeah. That's the best way visually, I think. And the flames tickle. They don't, <laughs> yeah, they he don't can burn. feel the flame. Yeah, that, that, His head's not on fire, so. Hmm. It's interesting. Mm. Well, I, I'm sure our listeners will have a good time um, thinking about <laughs> the science. Yes, the science of magic. That always. Yeah, I was proud to be the honorary Noah for this episode. <laughs> yeah. He's oh, clapping. You, shall he be listening? You wore it well. Um, well, uh, so the person who is coming, it turns out to be Filch, and he is digging through Umbridge's desk for something that he finds, which is the form to approve whipping. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> There's this great funny moment. He kisses it. <laughs> he finds it, and he leans in and kisses it. And he says, they've deserved this for years. That, that I finally get to do it. La, la, la. So he runs down. Harry follows. And, the, of course, there's this brilliant scene where Fred and George at first appear cornered. And there's students all around. It's the Great Hall. Um, 
Isn't the Great Hall? It's the entrance hall, yes, I think. The entrance hall. Um, it's the entrance hall. And basically they quickly summon their their wands, not be not before announcing where their new premises are, their business. Weasley Wizard Weasley's you can buy a swamp, uh, just like the one you've seen <laughs> Which... demonstrated upstairs. And they kick off and fly into the sunset. We all know this very, very well. Um I suppose that I don't really have many questions about this, but this is the great finale of the chapter, so... I have just one point about Filch and yeah. the whipping, mm-hmm. which sounded much kinkier you... than it actually <laughs> was. <laughs> um, my question is, um, I'm trying to remember if this is just a movieism or not, but I know that in the Philosopher's Stone movie, um, right. he actually reminisces about a time when, you know, detention would see you hanging from your thumbs in the dungeons go on mr screaming you know it's as though he can actually remember a time when there actually was corporal punishment at hogwarts and (laughs) you know they actually would torture the students so from that are we meant to imply that at some point during filch's time working as caretaker uh that that kind of punishment actually has existed at Hogwarts? I was going to say, I would suggest that it wasn't as hi- at his time as caretaker, but probably when he was a student. Um, because he was born in 56, according to the wiki. So um, Did he go to Hogwarts? Was he a student? That's a good question, yeah. Is he a squib? No, he wouldn't have gone to Hogwarts. That's true. Well, yeah, because the, the... That makes no sense. Well, the, cause Plus, I mean... The books definitely uh, again, imply this... it, too. There is the, there's yeah. there's like Harry sees I think the leftover old chains in his office that he's not allowed to use. Well, yeah, but like he started at Hogwarts in 1973. That's Dumbledore. That's either the very beginning of Dumbledore or the end of Armando Dippet, and I doubt that there was punishment at that point. Well, it yeah, is a well, medieval that's... castle, okay, guys. Let's just think about that for a minute. It's got dungeons. <laughs> it's got dungeons. It's got. All of the things that you would expect to find, like torture things in yeah, the castle. Yeah, but I can't imagine that as headmaster, Dumbledore would ever condone students being hung from their thumbs in the dungeons. Well, that seems extreme. I would agree. But we haven't quite seen the thumb instrument I to could, like, hang them. I, you know, it's like... So, sorry, Dumbledore was definitely headmaster. Just like, in, just like in present day where a mere, say, 20 years ago, when I was five and six spanking was much more generally accepted i'm not saying i got whipped or whopped um <laughs> a bunch of times by my parents but it was much 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 more widely accepted to do to children than it is today at least that's how i feel um so something like that a paddle i mean maybe i've never been paddled in school but my mother was and you know, she went to a Catholic school, a private Catholic school. And she always talks about how the nuns, the nuns, to, uh, the <laughs> nuns with rulers, and like they'd wrap your knuckles with the rulers. I mean, this happened not in our generation, but in the generation previous. So I would say, and that's you know, that's just in the real world in America. So I'm thinking, why wouldn't it be the same for the previous generation over in England and over? That's true. In yeah, no, and it, it was the same here. We had the cane. Which was mm-hmm. right. I, I don't know the exact date, but that was outlawed sometime in the early eighties, maybe. Okay, I, so I around think, the same sort of time. I think this is a math error on Joe's part. Um, we know how not good she is at math <laughs> because I truly don't think that Dumbledore would have had whipping or hanging people from thumbs 
And yeah. he was definitely headmaster when Filch started. Because, so. see, the way I look at it is corporal punishment is one thing, but Filch is clearly a sadistic <laughs> <Yeah>. expletive <laughs> removed. And, you know, he gets some kind of sick pleasure out of not just punishing the students, but actually torturing them. And, I mean, I know that some a question that many fans have raised over the years is Dumbledore's questionable recruiting in terms of his staff. But... Mm. I, you know, no matter how much he might pity Filch for being a squib or anything, I can't see him condoning Filch torturing the students, knowing that Filch is getting off on it in his own way. So, I well, don't know. Filch never gets to like that's that's really the I think the thing about Filch that's important is he stays around even though he's never been allowed to well, torture but this, those kids. The point I'm making though is that um, there are numerous allusions, certainly in the films and I think in the books as well, that. Filch did uh, have the opportunity to torture the students at one time mm. and now he's happy that because obviously that has been outlawed at some point and Umbridge is bringing some of that back but right. I don't know I mean that's probably just me nitpicking and making a fuss over nothing but I'm Harry no, Potter I mean, well, what we see do? Umbridge I mean in the previous chapter Umbridge tries to poison Harry um, you know with, with the Veritaserum and that is p- clearly against the law um, yeah. And and Filch needs this approval for whipping to be signed, presumably by Umbridge, so that he can carry out this punishment on Fred and George um, for making a swamp. I mean, we know it's a little bit difficult to remove, but uh, it's it's really just um, he's I looking think for it, an excuse to use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He clearly is getting off on it. I think that's fair to say. No, and I, I think um, I think the point is really good too. That, like you said, it's it's this is a, a medieval. Like Hogwarts does still carry a lot of medieval ways of thought. They've they've kind of like they're they're they we've talked about this before that the the progression of Hogwarts has kind of stopped around the thinking of about the the fifties and sixties era, depending on where you are in the world. But the, the that's kind of where their technology knowledge seems to essentially end, um, and their ways of thought in many ways. But. Uh, as, as far as that, like, there's possibility here since Filch had to get this permission from Umbridge. Maybe there, are, and you know how we know that there is a history with Hogwarts and contention with the Ministry and with the school board that Lucius Malfoy was previously on of all people. Um, so maybe there were laws that had to be worked around by Dumbledore that were a little outdated that he didn't like, but perhaps had to work to change that weren't immediate if we're if we're gonna give a, an excuse for rolling since her math is bad um that's the only thing i could think of is that dumbledore had to jump through hoops to get rid of these yeah. laws but could... it was it was like 15 years or 16 years <laughs> yeah because dumbledore according to the wiki was started as headmaster in 56 and filch didn't show up till 73 hmm Whoops! But but nice reasoning, good reasoning. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not convinced that Field says that in book one. I think it's got to be a movieism. I wanted to point out that um, at the very end here, on page six seventy five, the U.S. edition, there's one of the many references. Well, not many references to the number twelve on here because um, the twins' new place in Diagon Alley is number ninety three, which obviously, when you add them, is twelve. Oh. So. 
So there you Bit go. Bit of a stretch. <laughs> I was like, that's not a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, sorry. I mean, uh, that's and me Harry travels. Me. His <laughs> head travels through the flu network to twelve Grimald plays. Right. <laughs> Thought when you said no, that, I, I mean, was like, 93 isn't 12. <laughs> when you add them, it is. <laughs> when you add 9 plus 3. Do we know what it means? Do we know why it's relevant that 12 is brought up at this particular moment? No. Oh. But I just wanted to point it out since, you know, yeah. it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a thing. And now, before we conclude the episode, we always like to ask a podcast question of the week. And this week I was very determined to ask a question about James, and I want to thank all of my fellow podcast hosts, including our guest David, for helping format this question so that it comes out as the most, perhaps, thought-provoking we could we could do for the topic of James, because I definitely want to ask about James, because this is really the last time he's going to be prominent, play a prominent major role in the series. And my question is, in this chapter... Harry considers whether James forced Lily to marry him. While he is assured by Remus and Sirius that this is not the case, Harry does not leave the conversation completely convinced. What about James caused Lily to change her views on him and eventually marry James? Was it simply his loss of arrogance or something more? Was there something there that wasn't there before? Aww. <laughs> like snowball fights. <laughs> like adorable snowball fights and birdseed. <laughs> Please head over to the Alohomora main site and tackle this question for us. And we want to thank our lovely British man, David, for joining us today. Thank you so much. No problem at all. It's been an absolute honor. I mean, I've listened to Alohomora since the first episode and... I know I sound like I'm completely fan-geeking right now, but it's something I've always wanted to do. So thank you very Aww. much for the opportunity. It's, it's uh, great to have you. Yes. It, no, it means a lot to me. So thank you. Well, thank you, David. Aww. We loved having you on the show. You were a fantastic contributor to the conversation. It's very good to hear. I know I can waffle on a little bit at times, but as long as there's something of worth contained in there, then it's all good. I think that's what Eric says to himself every time he podcasts. David, you and I are pretty alike. <laughs> yeah, well, I have to say, I've thought that myself. I mean, as I said to you before we started recording, you are something of a podcasting hero of mine. I know, so that I'm saying that feel now so, good. so all the listeners can, uh, you know, bask in the glory that is, uh, you know, Eric the podcasting hero. Um, you know, I think that... Uh, no, there are I mean, worse even people our, I could be compared to. That's true. There are similarities in our origin story and similarities in our personality, so I think that we're going to be fast friends, and I've added you on Skype, so you should have me back. Um, oh, I'm honest. <laughs> Thank you very much, sir. <laughs> well, if any of you listening out there uh, find the Alohomore hosts, any of them to be your podcast heroes, we would love for you, <laughs> even if you don't, we would love for we you to join us on the show. Uh, to do that, check out the day. Be On The Show page at alohomora.mugglenet.com. Uh, if you have a set of headphones and a microphone, please, as well as uh, a program to record yourself on, then you're pretty much all set. We really don't require anything too fancy, and we'd love to have you join us for our Harry Potter conversations. And in the meantime, if you just want to stay in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at AlohomoraMN, Facebook.com slash Open the Dumbledore, on Tumblr at MN Alohomora Podcast. Uh, of course, our phone number is 206-GO-ALBUS, 206-462-5287. And you can leave us an audio boom, much like the one you heard in the recap earlier, 
Um, it's free. All you need is a microphone and an internet connection. And you can do that over at alohamora.mugglenet.com. Just please keep it under 60 seconds. That way we can play it on the show. And just like Fred and George, we also have a store, the Alohamora store. We have sweatshirts, long sleeve tees, tote bags. And I always think it's funny that flip flops are on this list because it's, it's, it's winter now, guys. But if you're in those sunny areas like me, Feel free to get some Alohomora flip-flops and so much more merchandise. We also have ringtones that are free and available on our main website. And let's not forget the smartphone app. It is available on this side of the pond and the other. Yes, that's right. We've recently replaced our phrase... Seemingly worldwide. <laughs> That's Prices so sad. Transcripts, End of an bloopers, era. alternate endings, host vlogs, <laughs> and more can be found. Listen or look for Michael singing <laughs> Celestina Warbeck on this week's app. <laughs> if that doesn't sell apps, I'm done. I don't know what can. Um, this has been another wonderful episode of Aloha More. I've been a blast to record with you all. I am Eric Skull. I'm Michael Harley. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 107 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore and give a hell from us, peeves! Here is your, uh, from me to you, the listener, uh, chapter summary for uh, chapter 29. Harry is having a trouble... Oh, let me read you that. <laughs> Harry is having trouble... De- I'm going to redo the whole thing. <laughs>